Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore the role and power of language, words, and phrases in how we discuss the issues that affect us and that drive our news and information cycles. Phrases like Black Lives Matter and cancel culture, and words like socialism, communism, and fascism. We battle over these in our media spaces until their actual meaning seems lost, and then we assign our own meanings to serve our ends. My guest is Dr. Laura Specker-Sullivan, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Fordham University. I want to start with, why is it that language is so powerful. I mean, all as kids, you know, I grew up and probably you did too with, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But clearly that developed because words do hurt and they do matter. Why is that? Yeah. So we use language to understand the world, but I think even more, right? Language is how we communicate with each other. And so language conveys things about how other people see us. And sometimes that can be kind of out of keeping with how we see ourselves, maybe the language that we prefer for ourselves. And so I think a lot of the time when you see these clashes over language, it's in part because there's that disconnect between the words that someone else is using to describe you or your experience and the way that you think of that yourself. But I think largely a lot of the the conflict and the disagreement you see is, is that clash where all of a sudden people's language is not matching up. And that can lead to really big problems. Yeah, it really can. And again, that just shows the power that language has. So we have these clashes now. We can start with this idea of of defining. So I'm defining myself in a certain way, or I think of myself in a certain way. And then there's someone trying to define me. And we have this often negative reaction to it. We can't just sit and be comfortable with, well, that's all right. We have a hard time doing that as humans. Why is it so important for us to have control over the definition? This idea that everyone kind of has the right or the ability to self-definition is relatively new culturally. And I think that's partly why you're seeing some of these clashes is that historically, certain groups had the power and the privilege to put words on other things. Um, And so the kind of like power of definition is something that hasn't always been justly distributed. It hasn't always been along egalitarian lines. This is a new idea where you have people actually taking the reins and using language that they want to use. And I think, again, that's where you see some of these confrontations is you see groups who have been kind of used to, again, having the power and having the privilege to define certain things and to say how they work. It's interesting. It's a very philosophical impulse. You go back to Aristotle and Aristotle is kind of where we get a lot of our, um, I think, scientific and intellectual obsession with categorization and definition and understanding the world by kind of like putting it into these boxes of, okay, this is what this is. And there is a real power to that. And I think it does serve intellectual purposes, but the danger is when you think that that's what that thing is kind of essentially, or when you take away the agency of that thing, which maybe is a person and maybe has other words or ideas that they want to use. Obviously, we have a million examples of this going on right now. Given that this podcast is being recorded this week when we got the verdict, uh, three guilty verdicts against uh, Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd, that moment, that killing led to this, I mean, the reckoning was happening, but that killing led to a flaring up of this reckoning of, hey, 
we matter. We have a phrase, black lives matter. And this is an example of how they don't. And so it's it's the phraseology mixed in with the experience and then trying to communicate the experience through the words. And then, of course, the the people in power or the people who don't have that experience are uh, almost taken aback. And then there's this scramble to push back on that. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit maybe about about the Black Lives Matter phraseology and movement and responses to that. I think it's natural human psychology to feel uncomfortable with a language or with a set of ideas that is unfamiliar to you or is maybe describing an experience that that you don't understand. Um, And I think it's very natural to feel maybe defensive in the face of that. I do think that uh, a really important virtue that people can kind of learn to practice and can get better at is humility and especially intellectual humility. You know, sometimes there's that initial feeling of defensiveness, like maybe in the in the face of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think it's important to kind of sit with that defensiveness um, and think about where that's coming from maybe before responding. I think often the response to Black Lives Matter is this idea of, yeah, all lives matter. And, and this has been said before. I, I don't think I'm saying anything new and pointing this out. It's like, yes, all lives matter. But right now <laughs> in the United States at this historical point, we need to be talking about how Black Lives Matter. And I, I've seen a, a meme that I'm, I'm sure you've seen, I'm sure other people have seen, um, about a house on fire. Yes, my favorite. Yes, I think it's so clear is that there's a house on fire and someone's like, this house matters. Like this one is the one that we need to pay attention to right now because this is the one with an issue. And then it has someone saying like, all houses, like the whole neighborhood matters. And it's like, yeah, but right now this one matters. And I think that that's a helpful way to think about it is that, saying that Black Lives Matter isn't saying that only Black Lives Matter. It's not saying that other lives don't matter. But it is saying that, I mean, we are a country with a remarkable history of racism, slavery, entrenched systemic inequalities. I think we really need to be thinking about that. And again, in a way that's not defensive, in a way that's not attacking anything about anyone's value being less than anyone else's. If anything, it's just saying, you know, we need to focus on this part right now in order to develop a more egalitarian society. Yeah, exactly. And and yeah, that is my favorite example because it does make it so clear. If you don't understand Black Lives Matter, I'm going to use language to describe it to you differently and like tell you a story. And then one would hope that the defensiveness would be like, oh, well, now let me understand why you think maybe your your lives don't matter. Now maybe I have some learning to do, right? One would hope that we can make that jump, but there's still that pushback, even though the fire example is so clear, there's still this defensiveness. This is where I love, honestly, Twitter, because I think the power of language on, tw- there's so many clever and articulate people on Twitter who can take this concept and be very clear about it. The, the house on fire is one, but there are multiple examples of people saying, okay, look, you know, this is an example of something needing to matter at this moment because it's, it's her or it's, it's, in, it's in harm's way. Although I will say, I think Twitter is great in that way. And I think Twitter is incredibly powerful in that it really does give anyone a platform that can get something retweeted. At the same time, and I want to tie this to defensiveness, I think part of people not being defensive is creating safe spaces for vulnerability. And I think that Twitter does not do a great job of that you know, understanding how these different platforms function and kind of what they can do and what they can't do is really important because Twitter is great for 
people understanding things via memes, right? Or getting attention to an issue that really matters and that gets uptake from a lot of people like retweeting it and talking about it. I think that's great. It's maybe not a place to to show vulnerability or maybe to bring up an issue that people feel sensitive about or that requires more nuanced conversation. And so, you know, this is a place where I think there's a demand for more, and this is so complicated in COVID, but for more small scale, in-person conversations about this stuff. And again, this is why I love being a philosophy professor is because I can talk about these things with my students, you know, with a group of, you know, 20 to 30 students who are like in their late teens, early twenties are very curious about the world are in my experience, very willing to make safe spaces for each other to explore ideas and try out different ways of thinking about things. And every space is not like that. Um, and so I think that's a very special space. And I really enjoy being able to be part of that. And it's a very different space than Twitter. You are 100% right. What Twitter turns into is my echo chamber and your echo chamber and everybody's echo chamber, rather than us really having that conversation across those divides. And, you know, I know you've done some work and some thinking around this idea of trust. And when we're talking about things like the Black Lives Matter movement or cancel culture, which I want to talk about as well, and some other things, we're really talking about, unfortunately, setting up dividing lines and then battling it out across those dividing lines rather than hearing, okay, what's going on here and how do we communicate? And we're more polarized. I'm also a journalist. So, I, you know, the loss of local news has made us more polarized. The fact that we grow up in, or we live in communities that maybe aren't that integrated makes us more polarized or at least have zero experience with someone else. And then of course, COVID. It's a difficult place to be in when you want to build trust or when you hope to build trust? Yeah. Before I came to Fordham, I had a position in South Carolina where I was a clinical ethicist, which is a position a lot of people don't know exists, but it's basically being someone at a hospital who carries a pager and who, if clinicians have ethical questions, they call you and you kind of help them sort out the issue. You know, you end up getting questions from people about very fraught situations. So cases where, you know, maybe it's end of life decision-making, maybe it's you know, trying to figure out how to convey a very difficult diagnosis to someone. And so trust is is such a huge part of it, especially in medicine, where I think people are inherently required to depend on or to be vulnerable to physicians and to the medical system just because they are sick and they can't fix that themselves, right? So they very much depend on this person. Trust is really important. And one of the things that started me thinking more about trust is that I mean, one, it's not something we always train clinicians to think about. And two, it's very different depending on cultural background. Um, and so this is where I think humility actually plays a really big part is in recognizing that the kind of behavioral signals or the conversational signals that to you might signal that you're trustworthy, right? That you're a great doctor, right? You're competent to do what you're saying you do, um, that you care about the person who you're trying to help. That doesn't always work if you don't understand what signals that person is going to recognize. Part of having these really complicated conversations is learning to be sensitive to each other's signals of trustworthiness and of people showing that they trust us. Um, and so I think that's where you know, really talking to people about experiences that have stood out to them in their life um, and creating a space where they feel comfortable sharing that with you 
is so key to being able to have these conversations where you're asking people to be vulnerable um, and to talk about things that are very sensitive. But it does require this attitude of going into the situation, not with, I know how to create like a trusting atmosphere, but thinking like, okay, I'm not really sure what this person needs from me. Like, what can we do here? I think it requires giving up a little bit of sense, sense of maybe control and power and expertise um, and just being people together. And that can be really hard. That can be really hard. And, um, you know, when I when I work with my students or when I work with people on this to try to find a middle ground to what you just said, it's like, you know, you don't have to give up who you are and you don't even have to give up your perspective. You just have to listen. That's all. You, you can disagree. But 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 here, you know, listen and and know that that person's bringing a different experience. And I, you know, I do this in writing, too. I'm like, you're not a good or a bad writer. This is a this is a different writing style we're doing in journalism than you do. And it's just different. You know? And I and kind of mm-hmm. like, you know, they just have a different experience than you. No one's no one's got more or less just different. So listen. Um, and then you can share, too. But but you're right. Like that's that work is sort of one on one or small group. And when you're dealing with the societal chasm that that we have it's like how do we possibly scale this up how do we possibly um bring this trust and humility uh out to the world into our social media spaces wherever again i think this is where it's complicated because so there are kind of like different ways that you might think about trying to have conversations about contentious issues and one is staging a debate between two people with very different views and like you said they're kind of going at it and they're butting heads And it's fun to watch, right? I mean, this is how we stage our presidential debates. Like this is how things play out in the news and on Twitter. And it's just, it's really interesting. And this is kind of why people like it. There's a podcast, The Hidden Brain, that I love. They were talking about this study of um, how people tend to engage in presidential elections the same way they engage in sports where they're kind of like rooting for their team and they're getting really emotionally involved. And that makes it like it's it's entertaining um, and it gets people watching and I think it really doesn't serve the aims that we think it does, <laughs> which is actually having a nuanced conversation where people might be willing to change their minds on issues. And so I think part of kind of shifting out of this, um, you know, really contentious, almost like culture war that we're currently going through, I think is willing to step away from that entertaining debate model of conversation and interaction and step more towards this conversation discussion where people are vulnerable which is really like isn't always as much fun to watch because you're not going to have that like I'm defending this person and this person is defending this other person right um that's not going to happen it it's absorbing in a different way but it's almost like we need to kind of reset people's sensibilities and you know, I'm, I'm honestly not sure how to do that other than to kind of get people away from their screens and into their local communities where they're actually talking to people, whatever that community looks like. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's a difficult thing. And that's where I think we've, through passivity or whatever, allowed our structures to break down. And again, as a, as a former journalist, I watch the deterioration of local news. And there are studies that show without local news, without that local component, we do become more polarized. And so how do we do this? We teach people skills like writing, teaching to the test, things like that. But we assume that they 
know how to be empathetic and that they know how to be curious. Those are just innate, right? But really, no, I think those are things that actually have to be cultivated. And we actually are making less room for that stuff now, maybe in our education system, maybe in the way we're living our lives. I think actually we need to make space for teaching of course, media literacy, but also teaching empathy, teaching curiosity, cultivating that in people, making room and space and uh, intentionality for it. And again, that's going to be a long-term solution. And I think we have some short-term problems we got to address. But I, but I, I think we need to kind of really look at what exactly is it that we can do well and what exactly, where exactly are we lacking in our way we deal with each other. One of the things that I think I was really lucky to be involved in when I was a graduate student is I was at the University of Hawaii, which was just a great place to be because it it's a department that has a lot of expertise in non-Western philosophy. So, right, Islamic, Japanese, Confucian. But one of the parts of the department that's really great is there's a program called Philosophy for Children that basically institutes philosophy being taught in uh, public schools, including elementary schools. I mean, it's a really remarkable program, but a really central part of Philosophy for Children is what are called community inquiries. And the whole idea behind a community inquiry is that you're creating a safe space for people to ask questions, um, to kind of just like say what's on their mind. Um, there are kind of structures that you use in order for people to learn how to challenge each other where you can say something like, you know, I think you're making an assumption or I have a counterexample to what you say that I'd like to share. And so we give them these kind of um, tools that they can use to have a conversation, again, about something that's contentious. So I'll never forget one of the days I went, um, the person who was teaching the class had a, one of these boxes where you can't see what's in it, but you put your hand in and you're kind of like rooting around to feel what's in it. And the whole idea was to try to describe what you think is in it, but how you think you know that. And so to try to play with kind of like perception and how we identify things. And just seeing these really young kids kind of ask each other questions where one kid was like, I, you know, I think it has fur. And one student would be like, why are you thinking that? Like, what is that coming from? And kind of just getting curious about each other's experience. It was really eye-opening. I still use community inquiries in my undergraduate classes. I think that they're really effective teaching tools. But I think a thing that's challenging about them, and I think this is something that's not unique to the United States, is that we think largely of education as job training. And in that context, education is ultimately competitive. And so it's hard to create a space where people are curious about each other's experience and they're kind of taking time to learn that and they're expressing intellectual humility. When you have students who their sense is not, you know, my job here is to be curious and to have a good conversation, and when their sense is more like, I need to be the one to reach my hand into that box and to identify what the thing is correctly first, and then I win, right? Which is kind of how we teach now. And that's actually, uh, that's how I would have been it as a student. I'm going to get it right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and so I think it it requires really rethinking, not just, again, not just what we teach, but if we want students to come away with skills of intellectual humility and empathy, we need to give them ways to practice those. And we also need to recognize that they're trying to practice them in a system that largely discourages their expression. There are a lot of tensions that I think we're, we're working against. It's not to say it can't change, but it's a complicated situation. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with Laura Specker-Sullivan. 
assistant professor of philosophy at Fordham University, about the power of language in our social media spaces. I'd like to shift to this idea of cancel culture, which I think was my initial reason for wanting to talk with you. What's your take on it and what's your take on how we're navigating and how it's affecting us? I feel like at this point, it's largely a meaningless word because of how disparately it's used. It seems to me the way words like socialism, capitalism, fascism, right? I mean, like these are words that are kind of being used politically in ways that people aren't necessarily thinking about what they mean and whether or not they're appropriate to the context. And so um, I tend to think at this point, cancel culture is really one of those words where it's more helpful to talk about specific phenomena than it is to say, you know, is cancel culture good or bad? Because it's like, if we have that conversation, we're probably both operating with a different understanding of what that word means. Those are great examples of um, fascism, socialism, et cetera. The meanings are gone. They're just, I know if I say this word, I'm going to get a reaction because people, again, have their own meanings of what they think it means. And so we're often not even on the same page when we discuss these things. So with cancel culture, I mean, it can be we're holding you accountable. There is a consequence. Freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom from consequence. You know, there's there's a responsibility there. Or it can be we're trying to chill your speech because we don't like what you say, even if it might be valid in the public discourse. Or we're bots and we're just attacking, you know, as bots and not people at all. But you're right. It's this it's this whole buzzword now that we've used. So. I've learned this from my students who believe in freedom of speech, but the peop- the students who come from traditionally uh, underserved groups or have been marginalized, they have kind of a different take on speech. They, 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 you know, they believe in speech, but they're like, there is real harm there. We felt it. We felt the harm. How do we balance all of that? And how do we balance making sure we can say what we need to say? So philosophically, I mean, how do you navigate those issues of the speech part of cancel culture or of consequence culture or whatever? How do you navigate with your students allowing space for them to express while dealing with the potential harm that can come from some of that. One of the things that we just went over in my class is there's a, a philosopher, Maisha Cherry, who um, is just coming out with a book called The Case for Rage, which I think is related. She has this chapter um, that's essentially defending this idea of moral anger. And she's distinguishing it kind of just from like simple anger, where she thinks, you know, simple anger is kind of getting angry at someone because you want to harm them, right? It's kind of like reciprocal anger, like maybe they've said something that's hurt you. And so you want to hurt them back. And you're going to do that by getting angry at them and saying something. And she distinguishes that from moral anger, which she thinks is anger that is expressed in order to try to um, encourage transformation or change within a community or within a person. And so it's It's getting angry at someone, but it's from a place of love where it's like, I know you can do better and I know that we can do better. And I think that that's just such an important distinction to make because, again, it's not saying that expressing something in anger is in itself. And I also think it's important to note that, you know, for people who are harmed, if they're getting angry in order to harm, in some ways, that's a really understandable reaction. And I think we need to remember that, especially for groups um, who have experienced kind of repeated and unceasing marginalization of their experience and their viewpoints. I don't think that jumping on those people and saying, okay, well, you're expressing the wrong kind of anger is really the best way to handle this. But I think that paying attention to that distinction for ourselves and thinking, 
you know, when I'm getting angry, am I getting angry because I want to cause harm or am I getting angry because I want to encourage moral transformation? Again, I think that's a question we can ask ourselves, not to judge others, but to say, um, you know, what am I doing with this language? I wonder, I feel that our society doesn't do well with anger. And therefore, because we don't deal with it, we don't distinguish any differences. We just see it all as this. And I, and so it would be wonderful for us to learn how to deal with that because there is a lot of um, historic systemic racism and, and sexism and misogyny and, and all kinds of things that we, that we have to, that I hope it feels critical that we figure it out if we want to move forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, too, that there are distinctions between who we think is allowed to express anger um, and when that's normal and and who is not and when we're kind of surprised and taken aback by it. And and again, I think that's just an important question to ask ourselves and perception to be aware of is that sometimes it's OK and sometimes it's not OK. And that doesn't really fall along rational or justifiable lines. Right, exactly. Um, and then there's this other piece of cancel culture. You know, I'm trying to hold you accountable by pushing back on you. And then the, and I think this goes back to the point you made initially in our discussion, this point of uh, if someone has any sort of power at all inside this societal space, that there is just this sort of seemingly overreaction to the criticism. And so that dance or that grappling with, um, with back to language, you know, like I'm trying to hold you accountable. You're trying to say these other things that I'm trying to cancel you or, or devalue what you're saying. I think in the societal space, that's paramount right now. It's hard because it's used so differently, but I think, so for example, um, you know, cancel culture in some ways operates as kind of public shaming um, and I think that that functions really differently when you're talking about, say, a college student who doesn't have a platform or a public role versus someone who is like a mayor or a governor, right, or a pop star, right? Like the, the, these are really different kinds of situations. And this is partly why I think it's important to to think about what people are trying to do when they're trying to call someone to account. I think expecting that we're going to have public leaders who do not um, sexually harass people who are working for them is totally normal. And I think criticizing those people on that basis is something they sign up for as part of that public role. I have trouble seeing that as anything like cancel culture, because that sounds like very healthy, democratic public criticism. Um, I think that's very different when you have you know, a student who, um, you know, posts something problematic on TikTok, and then that person is maybe doxxed online and, um, you know, is publicly shamed in a way that they never signed up for. And so I think that that's a really important distinction to make. And again, it does relate to, um, you know, the person's acceptance of a certain public role and whether or not they did that explicitly, you know, again, a politician does that and a college student does not. Um, and also kind of asking what we're trying to get from it, because the lesson that a student is going to learn by going through public shaming is probably not the lesson that we want them to learn. Um, whereas public shaming or cancel culture or something, public criticism of a politician or again someone in power is in part to call them to account for the role that they signed up for in the first place and to set expectations for how we think people in that role should act and so 
again, I think it's important to be clear on what, um, and I, I don't think people are always clear on what they want out of this kind of public criticism, but I think it's important to ask that question because those serve very different roles. That's a great point. It's such a blunt instrument in our public spaces. And we have to figure out a way to communicate that there's nuance and understand what we want here. Yeah, exactly. And this is why, you know, when I first started thinking about cancel culture, it just seemed like a lot of the, again, I think it's helpful to talk about the actual activity we're talking about, whether it's shaming or criticism or debate or whatever. But so much of the ethical valence of it depends on who's doing it, to whom, for what reason, how are they doing it? Like when, why, what are their reasons? And so I think getting really clear on that because it's not like criticism is bad in itself. Debate is not bad in itself. Even shame is not bad in itself, but it's it's just like Maisha Cherry's point, I think about moral anger, which is that the problem isn't anger, it's the way that it's used in different ways and for different purposes. I think that that's a really important thing to, to keep in mind and for people to be able to think about in a nuanced way for themselves. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Laura Specker-Sullivan, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Fordham University. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.